Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 38, Japan's Christian Century, part 1. This week we'll be starting our first three-parter on the introduction of Christianity to Japan. Christianity arrived with the Portuguese in 1453, and eventually began to gather a great deal of momentum until by around 1600 one of the major Japanese islands, Kyushu, was considered to be a Christian stronghold. However, just as meteorically as Christianity rose, it would also fall. Its former patrons turned against it, and the religion was repressed until finally it was functionally destroyed 95 years after arriving on Japanese shores. For the next few weeks, we're going to look at the factors that contributed to the rise of Christianity in Japan, the changes that led to its collapse, and the legacy of Japan's Christian century. Before we get started, however, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this topic is that it illustrates something very important about history. You see, human civilization has always been global to a certain extent, and this story illustrates that very well. It makes very little sense without a knowledge of what was going on in China, Europe, and even the New World at the time Westerners first arrived in Japan. Now, to be sure, I'm not saying that society in the 1500s was anywhere near as global as society is today, but still, globalization is not a new thing. It's simply much stronger now than it was before. So, what did Europe look like when Christianity came to Japan? Well, in 1453, Europe was in the midst of the most tremendous upheaval it had ever experienced since the collapse of the Roman Empire. Some 26 years earlier, an Augustinian Catholic monk named Martin Luther had nailed a series of 95 theses for debate to the door of a church in Wittenberg in modern Germany. He challenged the all-encompassing ideology of the Catholic Church, which formed the bedrock of medieval civilization, and in doing so touched off a storm that not even he himself could control. By 1453, Protestantism, a new splinter sect of Christianity based on Luther's teachings, was spreading like wildfire. Several states in northern Germany, at the time still ruled by a loose confederation called the Holy Roman Empire, had already converted to some brand of what was already being called Lutheranism, and one, the Archbishopric of Munster, had been taken over for a period of several years by a sect of Protestants called Anabaptists, who were considered radical even by other Protestants. Suppressing the Anabaptist rebellion had taken over a year and involved the deaths of thousands. Switzerland, close to the Italian heartland of Catholicism, had fallen to a separate branch of the Protestant faith called Calvinism, which, incidentally, is the spiritual origin point for most forms of Protestantism practiced in the United States. France, the greatest land power of the age, was bitterly divided by religious warfare which would not end until 1598. The monarchs of Scandinavia, split between the joint kingdom of Denmark-Norway and the newly independent Sweden, had already converted, and the rising power of England had broken away from the Catholic Church. Ironically, the English king who had arranged this breakaway, Henry VIII, had been named Defender of the Catholic Faith only a few years before, for writing a tract attacking the teachings of Luther. The area called the Low Countries, modern Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, were the site of a vicious rebellion of local Protestants against Austrian and Spanish Catholic overlords, 
in a bloody war that would not end until the 1640s with the official recognition of an independent Dutch Republic. All in all, Protestantism seemed to represent a very real threat to the very fabric of Europe. Its vicious reaction against the entire ideological background of Catholicism and the reaction of Catholic rulers against it resembled nothing so much as the reaction of capitalist rulers to the rise of socialism and communism in the 19th and 20th centuries. Protestantism was as much an existential threat to the status quo of the 16th century as Marxism was during modern times. And of course, all the while, a different religious menace was creeping up on Europe. The Islamic superpower of the age, the Ottoman Empire, was smashing its way into Europe under the leadership of the brilliant new sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent. However, things were not just doom and gloom for the Catholic monarchs of Europe. Spain, in particular, had been transformed from a backwater into one of the most powerful states in Europe in little more than a century, owing to two fortuitous turns of events. First, the various Spanish kingdoms had finally coalesced into a single state capable of expelling the Muslim rulers who had conquered most of Spain 700 years earlier. The final expulsion of the Muslims from Spain was completed in 1492. That same year, the Italian Cristoforo Colombo, or as you know him, Christopher Columbus, arrived in the island of Hispaniola, the island currently divided between the modern states of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. He claimed it for Spain, marking the beginning of Spain's overseas empire. From this point on, Spain would begin to build a massive empire, as would her neighbor on the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal. Spain seized most of the New World, from Mexico through South America, excepting Brazil, which went to Portugal, and used the wealth from that overseas empire to conduct a campaign against the Protestant states of Europe. Portugal, meanwhile, was less interested in fighting Protestantism, and in fact had worked at several points very closely with England in order to check Spain, which presented a very serious threat to the much tinier Portugal. Spain and Portugal avoided direct competition with one another, primarily by virtue of an agreement they had called the Treaty of Tordesillas. This treaty divided the non-Christian world between the two powers into zones of influence. The politics are really quite complex, and we don't really need to get into it, though it's worth reading up on if you're interested in the Age of Discovery. The simple version is that the world was divided into two hemispheres, one, stretching from Brazil through the New World to somewhere off the coast of China, belonged to Spain, and the rest belonged to Portugal. Each zone represented an exclusive area for its owner. The other power could be invited in, but the owner of the zone would have the first pick of trade and colonies. Eventually, this would all become a moot point, because in 1578, an accident of dynastic politics would result in one man becoming king of both Spain and Portugal, making them de facto one country, and resulting in very close coordination between the two until this union broke down in 1640. To summarize, then, that is the situation in Europe. An insurgent religious movement is gaining momentum in Germany, the Netherlands, England, and Scandinavia, and combating it are the established powers that be, led by the most powerful state in Europe, since the collapse of Charlemagne's empire. Now let's turn our attention to Japan. Where does it stand in 1543? At this point, the Sengoku period has been going on for 87 years, since the start of the Onin War, 
1466. While the period has not been one of constant war, on and off conflicts have been the order of the day for some time. The various local daimyo, or lords, are all jockeying for position and looking for any edge they can get on one another. Some of these daimyo had already begun to establish fairly substantial power bases, and are beginning to overshadow their neighbors. As a result, the stakes of the Sengoku conflict were steadily getting higher and higher, as these super daimyo began fighting for ever greater and greater pieces of the pie, each with an eye towards gaining control of the country. In other words, in the 1500s, Japan was very much a dog-eat-dog world. In terms of religion, Japan in the 1500s was dominated by a synthesis of mainstream East Asian Buddhism and the native traditions of Shinto. This religious synthesis was not exclusivist, meaning you could practice it alongside something else. However, more dogmatic religions existed as well. Doctrinally strict sects of Buddhism such as Zen, Nichiren, and Jodo Shinshu, the last of which you might remember from the episodes on the Ikoiki, had begun to gain some popularity in the country. Zen had even received some official patronage, but none of these sects really dominated any other. It was a very eclectic religious market. So how did Europeans come to Asia? Well, they had always known it was there. Even the Romans traded with the Chinese, and the people in both regions were peripherally aware of one another. However, serious contact was instigated by the Mongols, who by virtue of their vast empire were the first to seriously connect east and west, and all it took was a few tens of millions of deaths. Anyway, European merchants and explorers began arriving during the Mongol period, including the famous Marco Polo, and even after the Mongol Empire collapsed, these sorts of contacts continued, including a few missionaries, though many of them were beheaded by the emperors of China's Ming Dynasty, who were rather distrustful of foreign influence. Large-scale trade relations between China and Europe began with the arrival of a Portuguese merchant named Jorge Alvarez in 1513. China was pretty solidly in the Portuguese trade zone of the Treaty of Tordesillas, and thus the Portuguese dominated the China trade for quite some time. Noting, however, the tremendous wealth of East Asia, the Spanish decided to move into the area as well setting up a base of operations in the Philippine Islands after subduing the natives there. Thus, both the Spanish and Portuguese became heavily involved in the trade with China, and it was as a result of that trade that the Portuguese would come to Japan. In 1543, a Portuguese trading vessel led by a nobleman named Ferdinand Mendes Pinto blew off course and landed on the island of Tanegashima, off the coast of Kyushu. The local lord briefly considered executing them, being naturally somewhat suspicious of strange foreigners with bizarre hair and skin colors who could not even speak civilized languages correctly, with none in the Portuguese trade mission being able to speak Chinese, as they relied entirely on native interpreters. However, he was convinced not to by his son, who argued that executing these people would be a grave insult to a kingdom they knew almost nothing about. Besides, the son argued, you can always just kill them later. The lord of Tanegashima, it turned out, would not decide to execute them later. He gave the Portuguese mission under Pinto hospitality, and the Portuguese in turn entertained him 
with stories of their country as well as demonstrations of their firearms, the first ever seen in Japan. Despite a slight diplomatic setback when the Lord's son, impressed by the weapons, attempted to steal one and used himself and ended up blowing part of his hand off when he overloaded it with gunpowder, on the whole the first contact mission went rather well. The Portuguese mission left two of their guns when they returned to China, and the Lord sent them to a swordsmith to have the design copied. Within two years, the Tanigashima Domain was producing its own series of arquebuses of equal quality. Incidentally, for quite some time, one of the terms used in Japanese to describe matchlock weapons was Tanigashimas. Which is not to say that Tanigashima maintained a stranglehold on firearms trade for very long. When it became clear to the Portuguese that the Japanese were willing to pay top dollar for European weapons, there was a veritable rush of trade missions sent to Japan to sell them. Out of their newly established bases in Malacca, in modern Indonesia, and Goa, in southern India, the Portuguese rushed to send trade missions to Japan. There proved to be a rather substantial market for European goods in Japan, and an equally substantial one for Japanese goods in Europe. In addition, if you'll recall from earlier episodes, Japan was not a part of the Chinese tribute system, and was thus barred from officially trading with China. Half a century in the future, the Tokugawa shogunate would get around this by puppetizing the government of Okinawa and trading through it, but at this point in the 1550s, there was no easy way for Chinese goods to get into Japan short of piracy. The Portuguese, however, were allowed to trade in China and could thus act as middlemen for Japanese merchants, enriching themselves in the process. The trade that developed proved quite profitable, and, desiring to get in on the action, the King of Portugal decided to set up a licensing system for trade ships, whereby owners would bid for licenses to conduct the Japan trade. The ships sent to participate in the trade tended to have black-colored hulls from the pitch used to waterproof them, so black ships, or kurofune, became the Japanese byword for all foreign vessels. The word would be revived 250 years later when Commodore Perry arrived in 1853, though that time it was in a reference to the iron plating of the warships the United States brought to Japan, as well as the black coal smoke they emitted. Anyway, at this point, the relationship between Portugal and Japan was primarily a commercial one. But in 1549, that changed. A native of Kagoshima named Anjiro, we don't know his family name, if he even had one, fled the country after committing a murder. Hitching a ride with Portuguese merchants, he arrived in Malacca, where he met a member of the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits, named Francis Xavier. Who were the Jesuits? Well, they were a religious order of Roman Catholicism, founded by a priest named Ignatius Loyola in 1534. Francis Xavier was also a founding member. The details of their theology and organization aren't really relevant to us here. The important part was that they essentially had a two-part mission. The first was to spearhead missionizing efforts in newly discovered territory abroad. The second was to help lead the Counter-Reformation an effort at the internal reorganization of the Catholic Church designed to counter some of the issues that had led to the formation of and support for Protestantism. The Jesuits were an extremely exclusive order and demanded the best in terms of intellectual ability from their members. To this day, Jesuit schools 
remain some of the finest parts of the Catholic educational system. Anyway, Xavier was one of the best missionaries in the order, and had gone with a large contingent of missionaries to Asia. The Jesuits were already very active in China, where they hoped to begin converting the Chinese aristocracy and imperial family, who would then take charge of the conversion of the masses. The way in which they did so was quite interesting. Rather than simply condemning Chinese traditions as barbarous, the Jesuits took time to understand them, and to draw parallels between native Buddhist and Confucian institutions and those of Christianity. Essentially, they tried to suggest that Christianity was the completed version of Buddhism and Confucianism. In doing so, by the way, they also undertook the first serious studies of Chinese intellectual history. Being Catholic priests, they did so in Latin, which is why to this day the Confucian thinkers Hong Fuzi and Mengzi are known in English as Confucius and Mencius. Anyway, the Jesuits were proving popular in China, though more because they were useful to the Ming. Aside from their religious educations, the Jesuits also received excellent practical ones, and were thus very useful for their technical knowledge. However, very little progress was being made in terms of converting China. When Xavier heard of Japan, though, he became convinced that this new land held possibilities. With Anjiro, another Japanese expatriate whose name we do not know, a Chinese convert to act as an interpreter, and a cadre of other Jesuits, in 1549, Xavier set out for Kagoshima to convert the Japanese. Next week we'll talk about his mission, its effects, and the subsequent high watermark of Christianity in Japan. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, to submit ideas for future episodes, or to weigh in on what you think about the idea of adding ads to the show, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>